Philippians 1, verse 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Many thanks, Esther. And please do keep your Bibles open there at Philippians chapter 1. In Edwardian high society, it was popular to celebrate with a certain sparkling white wine. They believed that there are times when only champagne will do and that these times come around at least once a day. Now, you may not drink champagne every day, but 100 years later, that wine still carries the fizz of excitement and celebration. Whether it's a big occasion like a wedding or a birthday, the launch of a ship, victory in a Formula One race, there are times when only champagne will do. Winston Churchill wrote, a single glass of champagne imparts a feeling of exhilaration. The nerves are braced. The imagination is agreeably stirred. The wits become more nimble. But he warned, a bottle produces a contrary effect. Now, why am I talking about champagne this morning? Because we are starting a new series today on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Philippians is the champagne of the New Testament. This letter is fizzing with joy and celebration and happiness. Just listen to the the writer Paul in some of these verses that that Esther just read for us. Verses 3 and 4. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. It's just overflowing. Verses 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. This is such an emotional letter. Verse 8. Uh, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Later on in this uh, chapter, we didn't read this far, but we will soon. uh, Paul says, uh, I know I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm going to continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. This was a motto for our student work for at least a year. Maybe it still is. But that Paul doesn't just want us to progress in the faith, but to have joy in it. Now, let me tell you something absolutely incredible about this joy. It's that the writer was in prison. He was writing from prison. We know this from verses 13 to 14. He talks there about being uh, chained to the palace guard. And everybody knows that I'm in chains for Christ, he says. Now, along with Ephesians, Colossians and Philemon, Philippians is one of the four prison letters. There are four prison letters in the New Testament. So just imagine this for a moment. As he's writing, Paul is chained 
to a grumpy Roman guard, one of the Praetorian guards, literally in chains, and he's writing this letter, awaiting trial. He's heard news from the church. This is church in what we know of as northern Greece, Philippi, and sent a member from the church, Epaphroditus, and this man has made the journey to come in person to encourage him and to bring a generous financial gift for his needs. Now, it is absolutely stunning to me how little there is in this letter about the experience of being in prison. I just can't get my head around it. I'm pretty sure that if I was taken away to strange ways, Her Majesty's prison here in Manchester, or I have been, but as a visitor, uh, if I was in prison there and wrote back to Grace Church, let me tell you, there would be a lot of stuff about being in prison and how I was bearing up and how I got very gloomy and all the rest of it, wouldn't you? But just listen to this guy. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. So what I want to ask, and I, want, I hope you will ask it with me, is how can we too experience such joy? How can we too experience such joy? I think that will be the quest for us for the next couple of months as we try and search the treasures of this letter. Like champagne, this joy just bubbles out in Philippians. It revives and exhilarates and all those things. Surely we'd like to know the answer, especially in these COVID times. I think this is the secret. We will enjoy this joy to the extent that we value the things that Paul values. Can I say it again? We will enjoy this joy to the extent that we value the things that Paul values. So if we come to value and treasure those things that he does, that joy will well up within us. By valuing the things that grip the heart and imagination of this great man as he sits in a gloomy prison, that joy will come to us. And what are those things? There are two things in our passage today. He's delighted with the Philippian church, let's call them Grace Church Philippi, because one, they are faithful in gospel partnership, and two, they are fruitful in godly progress. Now that might sound like a mouthful, but let me just tell you, friends, you know, normally we only have, we have two or three points with alliteration. Today, we've got F, G, and P in both points. There's a cause for joy. Faithful in gospel partnership, fruitful in godly progress. Maybe you can remember those this week. Let's pop the cork, shall we? Just mind your eyes. Here we go. Faithful in gospel partnership. Verses three to five, Paul says he always prays for them with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's the reason. Because of their partnership, their faithful partnership in the gospel. A deep, contented happiness warms Paul's soul. And it's because the Philippians had been faithful partners. They heard he was in prison on this occasion and from another country they've raised money to support him, to send him. And you know in the ancient world the scholars tell us prisoners generally were not given food by their captors. So actually this is a serious business to be sent some money. But Paul's deep joy here is not just about having money to buy food and other essential items. His deepest cause is that they are partners with him in the gospel. Now, this word partnership is sometimes translated fellowship in some Bibles, and that's okay. But I think our version here, the NIV, has really caught it. 
because partnership was a word that they used when you went into business with someone, when you became a business partner. People setting up a new business need partners. They need people who will invest, who will put some serious money into the business, people who will shoulder the financial responsibilities with them and who will share the load of running the company. That's what they need, partners. And Paul is so joyful because he says, these Philippians were faithful partners to me in the gospel business, in the grace business. They were consistent. It was from the first day, right from the beginning, until now. And if you want to find out how this Philippian church had got going, go and read Acts chapter 16. It's absolutely fantastic, very dramatic. So they knew whether Paul was in his prime, taking the gospel to new parts of the world, seeing churches planted, teaching with power, or whether Paul was battered and weak and shamed and on the sidelines because of his imprisonment. Whatever the circumstances, these Philippian Christians were partners. They were in it. They sent money. They reached out to him. They sent messages. They prayed. He knew that they loved him. From the first day, the honeymoon phase, until now, years later, they did not forget. And the partnership wasn't just talk, it cost them. They put their hands in their pockets. They knew that Paul needed food to eat. He needed accommodation, places to stay. He had to travel. They knew he's not a, a lazy man. He works when he can with his own hands. He was a tent maker. That was his trade. But still they sent him aid again and again. And by the way, 2 Corinthians 8 reveals that they were not a wealthy church. So they were giving out of their own poverty. Partnership costs money. And you know, the more I go on in the Christian life, the more I suspect that money shows where your heart really is. I've seen this in, in church life and in ministry over 20 years, how when somebody really gets gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus really starts to come into the, every area of their life as Lord, even without being sort of t told about it, people often just start giving generous, eye-popping amounts of money to their local church and to other causes. Because something about knowing Jesus, really knowing him, changes your relationship with your wallet. It's fascinating. Now, the really interesting thing about all this is what so excites Paul the prisoner. What thrills him is that this faithful partnership is a sign that God is really saving these people. Have a look then again at your... Um, Bible verse 6 being confident of this he says I'm confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus a couple of things just little things to explain in there who's he who began a good work in you well that's God God has begun a work in them what's that work it's the work of saving them of bringing them to heaven to be with him in his kingdom and in his family. And the day of Christ Jesus is the final day, the day of judgment, the second coming when Jesus returns in power and glory to judge the earth, to separate all of humanity and to bring his sheep back home with him to heaven. So this is bringing our eyes from a local gift to a prisoner to something that's just absolutely glorious and epic and in the far future, which is the day when Jesus returns. And Paul says, you know, your partnership is so encouraging to me because it gives me this great confidence that God has begun a good work in you. 
And having begun it, he will carry it on to completion because God is a completer finisher. I don't know about you. I'm a terrible completer finisher. Uh, I, I start all sorts of things. I, I start dozens of books and then they just sit there with the bookmark and I never finish them. I'm, si- I'm, I'm looking behind the camera at my former colleague, Dan Collins. Now, he is a completer finisher. And in that sense, he's very godly because God is a completer finisher. So the fact that the Philippians are faithful partners in the gospel business is solid evidence that God is saving them. Because if God's saving you, you get really passionate about the thing that God loves, which is the gospel, Jesus, and his work of saving people around the world. Now, later theologians have called this idea, this teaching, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints sounds rather old fashioned. It's actually one of the most precious teachings of the Bible. It's this, that once a person is saved, truly saved by Jesus, they are always saved. They cannot lose their salvation. The perseverance of the saints, God will bring it to completion because he's doing it, not you. My father said to me many years ago that this doctrine should be renamed. It should really be called the perseverance of the saviour. The saints don't persevere because of themselves. My goodness, how weak we are, how foolish. But Jesus Christ said, I know my sheep, everyone the Father has given me, and promised that he would never lose any of them. Can Jesus be trusted? They were faithful in partnership in, in the gospel business. Through thick and thin, they stood with Paul in prayer and relationship and generous financial support. And Paul is so thrilled by this because it's a sign that God is saving them. One of the great historical examples of such a partnership was a man called Andrew Fuller. He lived in the latter half of the 18th century into the 19th. Uh, He was involved in in a start of a great mission work. The, The most famous person associated with this work was William Carey. But Fuller was the man behind the scenes. It all started in, in, in the 1790s. A little group of Christians met in the East Midlands in England. They felt the call of God to reach the world with the good news, to go beyond Europe, to go to places like Burma and even India. They decided to form the first Protestant Missionary Society. It was called the BMS, the Baptist Missionary Society. And this decision was taken by 14 people who were crammed into a little room measuring 12 foot by 10. And none of them were rich. Their startup fund, they passed around a snuff tin and they had 13 pounds, two shillings and six pence to reach the world. (laughs) One of their number was a man called John Ryland. He wrote this. Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never before been explored. And we had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, William Carey, as it were, said, well, I will go down and if you will hold the rope. But before he went down, he, as it seems to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. Carey went to India and spent the rest of his life there. He never came back to Britain. Andrew Fuller never let go of the rope. He served as the main promoter, 
thinker, fundraiser, letter writer of the society for over 20 years. Orway was leading a church and raising a family. He and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. Eight of them died in childhood. Yet Fuller travelled all over the country, speaking to raise support for the mission. He led on communications. He took the lead role in selecting new missionaries. He wrote to them on the field and wrote to people at home. Tireless energy. He never let go of the rope. Now, one challenge for us at Grace Church, friends, is to maintain this kind of partnership with others in gospel work. We have a number of mission partners uh, around the world and in this country we need to hold the rope for them, to be consistent in our financial support, but not just money, our affection, our sending of messages, our keeping in touch, our prayers for them. To send that kind of support, be in the gospel business with people all around the world, I think particularly at the moment of North India, but other places too. And our church planting partners in this country, and I'm thinking particularly there of Redeemer Church, in, Man in Chilton. What does it look like? Hold the rope, talk to them, pray for them, give to them. Ensure that our resources support God's work. Now that's missions and that's what Paul was involved in. But let me ask, does giving of your resources and your finances take a priority in your budget? Does your giving to your local congregation take a priority for you because if it does that is something you can rejoice in God is clearly at work in you Paul would say that I'm filled with joy because of your partnership in the gospel because you give so the first mark of a healthy church that we can get really happy about is that they're faithful in gospel partnership and the second mark is captured in Paul's prayer from verse 9 to 11 and it's they, a prayer that they would continue to be fruitful in godly progress let's just read that prayer verse 9 to 11 this is my prayer he says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, these prayers of Paul, I don't know if, how you felt when I was reading it. It's quite compressed, isn't it? It's quite hard to get your head around everything he's saying. So I want to just let it breathe for a few minutes and open up and take each little section quite quickly, but just so we can sense the the the, the, the nature of his prayer. One thing I feel like, and I don't know what you feel, is glaringly obvious to me. I don't normally pray like this, if I'm, if I'm honest. And I don't feel like I hear other people praying like it either. I think this is a great place for us to learn about what we should pray when we think about other Christians. It's a beautiful example of what to pray for. If you want the best for someone, here's what you can ask God for it's especially a prayer for spiritual progress for spiritual growth uh, but there's a sequence of things in here that that repays our close attention here's here's um, I try to put the sequence into one sentence he prays that they will grow in wise love that leads to discerning choices and personal purity that they will grow in wise love that leads to discerning choices and personal purity. 
Just think with me about that little sequence. Wise love, verse 9. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and insight. Now, when we think about the word love, I think we generally think about emotions and affections. Today is Valentine's Day. Uh, I don't know if you've had a card or not. You know, Valentine's, it's fun, but it is pretty sentimental, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty gushy. We tend to think of love as all about feelings and sort of losing ourselves and our rationality as we go head over heels for somebody. We tend to separate the head and the heart. But look at how love is described here by Paul. Love abounds in knowledge and insight. What wisdom? It's wise love. This is head and heart joined together. Love is bound up with knowledge and insight. And this knowledge isn't just knowing a lot of stuff from books to pass an exam. This is a deep knowledge of God. What is God like? What does he value? What does he love? What does he hate? What is God's world like? What's the reality of it? What, what, how has God made people? How do we understand each other? This is a clear thinking love that's also passionate. And in this letter of Philippians, love is most often concerned with looking out for the needs of other people, especially your church community. That's wise love, is understanding the people in your church community and how you can love them well. So he prays that they'll grow, abound in this wise love. And that will lead to something else, verse 10 discerning choices verse 10 so that you may be able to discern what is best be better equipped to make discerning choices the world of these philippian christians was one where moral issues were blurred and distorted life often presented them with choices ethical choices moral choices that seem to be shades of gray not black and white and that's what our lives are like as well we need discernment to be able to see clearly the best way to live, the best choice to make in a specific situation, in work, in our family, in our relationships, in our parenting, in every aspect of our life, to sift good and evil in a world where many things are murky. We need to grow in telling the difference between the, the right and the wrong, or even the best and the less good choice discerning choices so growing in wise love leading to discerning choices thirdly leading to personal purity verse 10 second half of verse 10 and 11 uh, to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness this is talking about character transformation that's what paul prays for them i want them increasingly he says i want you to be pure and blameless filled with fruit in your character that comes from being righteous. It's, it's talking about character transformation. Now, pure means sincere. It means having integrity, not having a, a pretense like living a double life or there's two sides of you that are very different. It's the kind of person who, who is the, the same on the inside as the outside, not a, a, a pretender, uh, someone who's, who's sincere. And blameless doesn't mean absolute perfection because it's only Jesus in the history of the world has been absolutely blameless. But it means here not, not a person who gives offence. 
not a kind of offensive, rude person. It's someone who can't be blamed by others because of their conduct. Uh, if people knew what you were like when you were driving and somebody cut you up, or when you were queuing in the supermarket and somebody barged in front of you, or if some, how you respond when somebody is very rude to you, or when you're at work and you're mistreated, or when you're at home and the door's closed and nobody sees you, or when you're in a conflict situation, or in a restaurant where there's poor service, or you're under great stress, are you still a person who respects others, treats them well, is understanding, gracious, kindly? That's blamelessness. And Paul says, I, I want to pray that for you, that you'll be growing to be blameless, discerning what is best, pure and blameless, a sincere blameless person. And then he says that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, righteousness has got many levels of meaning. In some respects, it's a key characteristic of, a characteristic of God himself. But here it means godly behaviour, the conduct of our lives, that they're, they're righteous. They, they look like Jesus. They're lives that are filled with the, the character of Jesus himself. So being filled with the fruit of righteousness means your real life matching up to your righteous standing in Christ. Being a person who conforms to Jesus' likeness. See what he's talking about? Is a beautiful, increasingly transformed, holy character. Not a, a stiff, starchy, judgmental, prudish person. Not a kind of uh, angry person who knows the truth but is just sort of really angry at others all the time because they don't match up. But somebody who is, is increasingly like Jesus, um, a, a lovely, holy, happy character. That's what he prays for them, for these Christians. And that, he says, will prepare them for the day of Christ. There's that day again, the final day when Jesus returns. Jesus will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Truth and justice will prevail. And at that point, all pretense and sham will be stripped away. We will be seen for what we really are, for who we really are. And those who are in Christ already have his righteousness given to them. But if that is the case, then they will look more and more like him as their life goes on. Paul is confident that these Christians will be proved genuine, not exposed as fake, because God is a completer finisher. So as I close, what does this look like for us? You know, we too live in a world where moral issues are very blurred, where we've got many challenges every, every day, every week that we have to face. We find it hard sometimes to see the right path. How can we see clearly in such a time as this? Well, first of all, it seems from this passage that those of us who are spiritually mature should instruct those who are younger in the faith. Paul's doing that for the Philippians. He's praying that for them. And they in turn should do that for others. So this is one reason why we have such an emphasis on real relationship and on things like life groups or the student ministry and smaller groups and Bible studies and so on. At Grace Church, we're not just all about the Sunday morning, which is, which is vital and the centerpiece of our church life, but we're about real relationship where older believers can help younger. Um, that's how we're going to be able to grow in wise love because we'll really know each other. 
because we'll be sharing life and granting permission to speak into each other's lives when somebody trusts them. And you know that only comes about through quality time and through being genuine. So Christian friends, will you make yourself available to other Christians, to community, so that you too will be helped to grow in wise love and discernment and therefore into that happy purity? Is is small group or prayer time or life group something that's first in your diary every week so that you make it a priority? Or is it kind of easily dropped when other pressures come on? We will not be able to disciple one another without being in community. And we won't be in community if we're not spending time with each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German uh, thinker who was killed by the Nazis just before the end of the Second World War, said, Where Christ, for love's sake, commands me to maintain community, I will maintain it. Finally, let me just point out one area in our culture where I think we need to grow in discernment because it undermines godliness. It's the, the, the idea of entitlement. Entitlement. Western culture is increasingly dominated by a sense of entitlement rather than a sense of service. Entitlement is the view that I have rights. I have certain rights and therefore I can demand them and assert them that I should be treated in a certain way. Now, of course, we do have rights. They've been given by God. But this is going further than that. This is a mentality that starts to say other people owe me. The world owes me. And I, me, I need to ensure that I get what I deserve. Concerns my right to have my voice heard, to have my criticisms shared on the social media platform of choice, to put my opinion across, to have my... uh, chance at complaining regardless of how the other person might feel or think or respond to it it means that when things don't get in my way go in my way or when my toes are stepped on I get stroppy and angry and go around telling other people about it and maligning the person who wronged me but just think about the impact of that spirit of entitlement of getting what I deserve on my life and character what's its impact on humility Well, a person who is entitled tends to think they're superior and to be judgmental of the other's failings. On personal dealings, we become increasingly rude and inattentive, unable to listen because we have to have our voice heard. We're unable to respect another point of view, even if it's frankly wrong or we don't agree with it. We should be able to listen to it. What about our attitude to authority? Always is it one of defiance and a posture of, I won't be told and critical of government and others. Now, the impact of entitlement on true community is devastating. It's completely undermining and very ugly. But it doesn't have to be like this. Paul is saying to the Christian church in Philippi and to us now, 2,000 years later, I want to pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and insight, deep insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And if you are seeing that in another Christian and seeing it increasingly in yourself, that you're becoming fruitful in gospel progress, then that is a source of incredible joy.
just as being faithful in gospel partnership is a source of incredible joy for Paul. We will enjoy this joy to the extent that we value the things that Paul values. You see that? This is so countercultural. This is so opposite to everything that our culture says. Culture says you use your money, you will only get joy if you spend all your money on yourself. Paul says, actually, the more you're giving it away, the more joy you're going to experience. Culture says, the more you serve yourself and look after your own interests, that's what will give you joy. Paul says, actually, the more you pour out yourself for other people and, and give yourself in love to them discerningly in a holy way, that's what will give you joy. Do you think he's right? Because if we're not experiencing any of the joy of Christ right now, it may be because we're just not living like this. It's a great challenge. It's also great champagne. So I want to encourage you, if you've, you can this week, to read through the rest of Philippians. It's not long. And get ready for this series. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'm actually going to pray um, our pastoral prayer. Frank was going to join us today, but he's not well. So I'll, I'll go right into that and pray. Let's join our hearts and minds together. Gracious Lord, loving Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter that you gave us that you inspired Paul to write that you filled with your truth and with all good things thank you that we too have heard the gospel and that you have made it to be effective in our lives that you've called us to belong to Jesus that you've saved us and one evidence of being saved is that you are now stirring us up to generous partnership and to godly progress. Father, we ask, reveal to us those areas in our lives where we can grow more and help us to make changes there this week. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.